Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show.
It's good, boys and girls, two-footed podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 28th of February. We are almost in March. And according to my weather app, the weather's about to get worse. So I'm not happy. Uh, We had football last night. We had three games in the FA Cup. Leicester City went to Bournemouth and won 1-0. This was a mental game of football. Lots and lots of shots. 27 for Bournemouth, 22 for Leicester. Bournemouth only got four shots on target, which will tell you how their finishing was. Leicester had six on target, pulled a couple of good saves out of Mark Travers. Game finished nil-nil after 90, went to extra time, and just on the stroke of half time in extra time, Abdul Fatawa scored an absolute worldie. Played the ball into Ianacho, followed up the play, got it back, one touch to shift it sidewards, and hit this gorgeous left-footed shot, which, to be fair, Mark Travers almost clawed out of the top corner. But it was a goal worthy of winning the game, and congrats to Leicester. That is, that's a very impressive win. Neither team were at full strength, obviously, but there was plenty of good players on view, and it was a fun game to watch. Uh, Blackburn Rovers won, Newcastle won. Newcastle did not play well at all in this game. And that's concerning when you look at the team they put out. Other than Lachelle's in for Botman, obviously the goalkeeper, Nick Pope's not there. Dubravka was back in, though. He's their number two. Lachelle's came in for Botman, and Murphy was in for... Barnes or Almiron or whoever. And Willock started. But you had Trippier, you had Shar, you had Byrne, Longstaff, Gamerish, Isak, and Gordon. Like it was very close to their best available 11. Uh, one concern Lewis Miley came on and went off. Hopefully, that's not going to be anything that rules him out for too long. They brought Barnes, Livermento, Almiron, and Elliot Anderson off the bench. It was good to see Elliot Anderson back and playing. Would have been nice to see Lewis Hall potentially get a run out, but I don't know what he did to Eddie Howe. Um, Newcastle didn't play well, but they did go 1-0 up through Anthony Gordon. But Sammy Smodix equalized on 79 minutes, and the game went to extra time. Couldn't find a winner there, and we went to penalties. Fabian Schaar stepped up. He scored. Sammy Smodix missed. Harvey Barnes missed. Callum Britton equalised. Bruno Gamerish scored. Arnor Sigerson scored. Elliot Anderson scored. Yasin Yari scored. Anthony Gordon scored. And then Dominic Hyam missed. And he looked exhausted walking up to take that penalty. I felt really sorry for him because he played really well. But... It wasn't to be, and Newcastle are through. That is only the fifth time Newcastle have won a penalty shootout in 17 attempts in domestic cup competitions, in all competitions. That's an atrocious record. Um, But the two are through. I had a feeling last night watching the game that if the two went out, Eddie Howe might be done. I don't know why. I just, that was just something that I was thinking about non-stop. In the other game last night then, Luton Town 2, 
Manchester City six. Just the five goals for Erling Haaland in what was a quite ridiculous performance. One of two ridiculous performances in this game. So here's a stat you don't see very often. Manchester City, 17 shots, 15 of them on target. They took 17 shots and only two weren't on target. That is ridiculous. Haaland put them one up on three minutes. Matthias Nunes slipped in De Bruyne. De Bruyne cut it back and Haaland scored. On 18 minutes, long ball to Haaland. He lays it off to De Bruyne, spins and goes. De Bruyne plays it into him. He's through on goal and he just smashes it through the goalkeeper. On 40 minutes, De Bruyne plays it through. Haaland runs onto it and he lifts it over the goalkeeper. On 55, it's a lovely ball from Kyle Walker. De Bruyne breaks down the right, slips it across, and it's a tap-in for Haaland. And then on 58 minutes, he makes it five with Bernardo Silva, this time producing the assist. Uh, I would have been embarrassed if I was Tim Krul and I let that goal in because he hit it straight at him and it wasn't all that powerful. I'd be more embarrassed if I was Tim Krul and I conceded Kovacic's sixth, uh, which was a decent strike, but it goes through the goalkeeper, basically goes through the goalkeeper's hands. Tim Krul was atrocious. Um, the only two who stood out for Luton last night were Ross Barkley and Jordan Clark. And Jordan Clark scored their two goals. He scored the first at 3-0 down. It's an absolutely sensational goal. It is stunning. It's the best goal of the night by a wide margin. A gorgeous curling shot from 25 yards out into the top corner from a, a Barkley kind of layoff. The second on 52 minutes made it 3-2 and looked like we might get a decent game in the second half. We've seen Luton not turn up in the first half and then be really good in the second half. And it looked like we might get that again. It's a gorgeous little assist from Barkley, lifts it through the defence. Clark finishes really, really well. Probably the second best goal of the night. And like I say, went to 3-2 and you thought, oh, hang on, maybe City will be in bother here before they banged in three more. Uh, Very, very comfortable for City on the whole. And they march on. We have four games tonight. So, kicking off at 7.30, we have Chelsea versus Leeds United. Now, to get to this point in the competition, Chelsea played Preston North End and beat them 4-0. Armando Brogia, Thiago Silva, Raheem Sterling and Enzo Fernandez with the goals. Then they played Aston Villa. They drew 0-0 at home, went to Villa Park and beat them 3-1 in what was a bit of a surprise. Conor Gallagher scored in 11 minutes, Nicholas Jackson on 21, and then Enzo Fernandez on 54. Moussa Diaby pulled one back for Villa, but ultimately it was meaningless. And that is how Chelsea have arrived at this point. For Leeds, they played Peterborough in the first round away. Ethan Ampadu got two and Patrick Bamford scored the other in a 3-0 win. Then they played Plymouth. They drew 1-1 at home. Jaden Anthony put them one up, but a goal by Adam Randall uh, gave Plymouth a replay. In the replay, 
Leeds went one up through Wilfred Nonto, but Brandon Galloway, who's formerly of Everton, I think. Yeah, formerly of Everton, uh, came through the MK Dons Academy. He equalized on 78 and sent the game to extra time. And an extra time, Leeds just ran away with it. Crescencio Somerville, Jorginho Reuter, and then an own goal by Ryan Hardy put Leeds through. You would make Chelsea favourites because they're the Premier League team, but Leeds United have won nine games in a row in the league. They've won 11 of their last 12 in all competitions. They're in really good form. And you know what the most impressive thing about their league run is? They've only conceded two goals. They beat Birmingham 3-0, went away to Cardiff and beat them 3-0, beat Preston 2-1, beat Norwich 1-0, went away to Bristol and 1-1-0, beat Rotherham 3-0, went away to Swansea and 1-4-0, went to Plymouth and 1-2-0, and then they beat Leicester, the league leaders, on Friday night 3-1. And in both of the games where they've conceded, they've actually gone behind and fought back to win. Leeds are in immense form. Can they overcome the talent gap? That's the big question. Chelsea at home. You'd wonder how much the cup final will take out of their legs. Leeds played Friday night, so they've had basically 36 extra hours of recovery. More than that, really. Probably, it's not quite 48, but it's probably about 42 hours of additional recovery that Chelsea don't have. But Chelsea do have a huge squad. Um, if we look at the Leeds team, I mean, we know a lot of the names. Ilan Melier, not a not a big fan. Ethan Ampadu, Chelsea will know him very well. He was on their books for a number of years. He has been really, really good since joining Leeds. Uh, Joel Perot is a player I like very, very much. Bamford is starting to show signs of life this season. Crescencio Somerville has been tremendous this season. Hasn't started an FA Cup game yet, so we'll see. Uh, Jaden Anthony, not a big fan, but he is a grafter. He's more of a squad player than anything else. He's two starts in the league, 21 sub-appearances. He's one of them that they bring on to see out games. Uh, Joe Roden's been excellent at centre-back, and... I'd imagine they will be trying very hard to keep him for next season. Dan James is playing regularly and scoring regularly. He has 10 goals this year. Pascal Struik has been really, really good for them. Jorginho Reuter has been really good and finally starting to repay the big fee that they paid to bring him in. Wilfred Nonto isn't a regular starter, only 12 starts in the league with 14 sub-appearances. But every time he's on the pitch, he is just electric and he looks like he's going to make something happen. But the one to watch, assuming he plays, he may not, is Archie Gray. If you haven't seen Archie Gray, I urge you to go and watch this kid play. He's the son of Andy Gray, not the pundit, the former footballer who... Only retired a couple of years ago. What year did he retire? Oh, 2014. is longer than I thought. Um, played for Leeds, Forest, Bury, Preston, Oldham, 
Bradford, Sheffield United, Sunderland, Burnley, Charlton, Barnsley, Leeds again, and then Bradford again. Two caps for Scotland. Um, his son, Archie, who's a, a third-generation player, grandson of Frank Gray, great-nephew of Eddie Gray, he is an absolute star in the making. He is 17, doesn't turn 18 for another two weeks. This season, he has played 36 games for Leeds, mostly at right back, and he has been very rarely below a 7.5. He is just phenomenally good. He is going to be a £100 million footballer. He will be the player that people think Declan Rice is. He's a natural defensive midfielder. He's big and rangy. He's really good in the ball. He is super smart and switched on defensively. Like I say, he's been playing mostly right back this year. Now, I haven't watched every Leeds game. I've probably seen 12 or 14 of them purely to watch this kid play. I haven't seen anyone get the better of him. I haven't seen one winger get the better of him and expose him. He is just locked down quality player after quality player. Out of position. It's so impressive. And when he steps into midfield on the ball, it's so natural. He's got the Declan Rice ball carrying through the phases, which is very impressive. He's comfortable on the ball. He's good under pressure. Really switched on, like I said, defensively. And he's strong as well. He is big and strong for a 17-year-old. He is going to be a £100 million footballer. And if I if I was running Liverpool this summer, I would be spending whatever it took to get him. Because even if you pay fifty million for him, that's going to prove to be a bargain. He's that good. Him and Lamine Kamara, that's the midfield move, Liverpool. That's what you do. They'll both be a hundred million pound players, in my view, if you get them this summer. He's sensational. If he plays tonight, he's worth watching for a low. Um This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, next game then is Nottingham Forest at home to Manchester United. United obviously looking to bounce back after a very disappointing weekend in which they lost to Fulham. Forrest had a pretty good um, win a couple of weeks ago against uh, West Ham, but obviously lost at the weekend to Aston Villa, but still gave a decent account of themselves. Now, Forrest have taken the hardest possible route to get here. First round, they draw Blackpool at home. They go 2-0 down within 27 minutes. Goals by Jordan Lawrence Gabriel and Albie Morgan. But then they wake up and Nicholas Dominguez scores and then Morgan gives White scores and we get a replay. Omobama Deli puts them one up. Danilo puts them two up. You think they're breezing through. But Morgan scores and then Kyle Joseph scores to pull Blackpool level, and we go to extra time, and Chris Wood wins it for them 
in extra time. Then they drew Bristol City. They drew nil-nil away. Then they got the home game. They went 1-0 up through Divock Origi. Then Jason Knight scored for Bristol to equalise. No more goals in that game. Went through extra time, went to penalties, and they won 5-3 on penalties. So against two championship teams, uh, actually, Blackpool are League One, aren't they? Yeah, Blackpool are League One. Against the League One team and a championship team, Forrest have made really, really tough work of those draws. Uh, United have not done anything of the sort, but they have had favourable draws. In the third round, they drew League One Wigan. They went to Wigan and won 2-0, Diogo Delo and a Bruno Fernandes penalty. Then they drew League Two Newport. They went to Newport. Fernandes scored, Menu scored, Anthony scored, and Rasmus Hoysen scored a late uh, kind of cherry-on-the-cake type goal in a 4-2 win, and through they go. This will be the biggest test for both sides. I fancy United to go through. I think they're going to take it a lot more seriously. Forrest have to deal with potential relegation, potential points deductions. They've got a lot to be concerning themselves with. United, really and truly, the FA Cup is their only op- option to salvage this season. They're out of the Champions League. They obviously didn't win the League Cup. And top four looks, I think it's out of their out of their reach, personally. Gary Neville thinks they'll sneak in. I think it's out of their reach. So they have to win this game. They have to go and try and win the FA Cup. It's the only way to salvage this season for them. Um, Moving on, our third game of the evening, which is also like the United Forest game, a 7.45 kickoff. And that is Wolves home to Brighton. So Wolves drew Brentford in the first round. Joe Gomes was sent off after nine minutes. Neil Mopay put Brentford one up on 41, but Tommy Doyle equalized on 64 and sent it to a replay. In that replay, Brentford went one up through Nathan Collins. Semedo equalized. Mopay put Brentford 2-1 up, but Nathan Frazier equalized. Game went to extra time. And Matthias Cunha won it with a penalty late in stoppage time at the end of the first half of extra time. Then we got the Black Country derby and Wolves went to West Brom. Pedro Neto scored. Matthias Cunha scored. And it was all plain sailing, which set up this game at home for Wolves against Brighton. Brighton drew Stoke away in the fourth round. They went 1-0 down through a Van Hecke own goal. Estupinen scored in in added time at the end of the first half. Lewis Dunk scored early in the second half. Lewis Baker got Stoke back level, but Joe Pedro scored two to make it a comfortable 4-2 win in the end. Then in round four, they went north to play Sheffield United. Buenanote put them one up on 14. Joe Pedro made it two on 29. Gustavo Hammer pulled one back to make it 2-1. Then Asula pulled a second back late in stoppage time at the end of the first half to make it 2-2. And then Brighton got serious in the second half. Joe Pedro scored a second penalty. Then he scored his hat-trick. And then Danny Welbeck wrapped it up in stoppage time. A 5-2 win. This 
in my opinion, is the most interesting game of the night. Wolves are good at home. Not as good as I had thought and others had thought, but they are good at home. They've, they've given good teams tough games at Molyneux. They've beaten City. They hammered Liverpool for 45 minutes, but then lost 3-1. They've drawn with Villa. They've drawn with Newcastle. They've beaten Spurs. They've beaten Chelsea. It all depends on which Brighton turns up. If the good Brighton turn up, Brighton can win this game. As simple as that. Because Brighton are a better team than Wolves. They have better players. They play a more adventurous style of football, which causes Wolves problems and opens them up a little bit. In the league this year, these sides met in the second game of the season and Brighton beat them 4-1. Now, you can't really take much from that because Wolves had such a strange start to the season with Lopetegui quitting on the eve of the season and Gary O'Neill having to take over. So I would throw that one out, but it does still stand that Brighton know they've gone there and won heavily already this season. Our final game then is the 8pm kickoff, and it is Liverpool at home to Southampton. Now, Liverpool obviously very injured and coming off the back of a titanic effort to win the League Cup at the weekend. It's very hard to know what team Jurgen Klopp will put out but it will be a very young team. Uh, to get here, Liverpool played Arsenal at the Emirates and beat them 2-0. Jakob Kivor own goal and then a Luis Diaz stoppage time goal. Arsenal were very upset on the day. Uh, then they played Norwich in the second round, or the fourth round as it is. Uh, they went one up through Curtis Jones, but then Ben Gibson equalised. Darwin Nunes put them 2-1 up. Diogo Jota made it three. Virgil van Dijk made it four. Borja Sainz made it 4-2. And then Ryan Gravenberg wrapped it up with the late goal. 5-2, very comfortable overall. Other than the little spell around where Gibson scored. Um, Liverpool will be heavy favourites. But, you know, Southampton aren't here for the fun of it. They beat Walsall 4-0 in the third round. Two from Ryan Fraser, one from Seiko Mara, one from Che Adams. They drew Watford. Matthias Martins put Watford one up. Stuart Armstrong equalised late. It went to a replay. And Southampton won 3-0. Two from Seiko Mara and one for Che Adams. No replays in this round. Because the schedule is so tight, there cannot be replays. So... What we know is these games will be decided tonight, either by extra time or by penalties. Uh, I think Chelsea will win. They should win. They're a Premier League team at home. I'm going to go United to win, Brighton to win, and then Liverpool to win. Even, even though I think Liverpool will rest players, I think Southampton will as well. Because I think, I think Southampton have to be so focused on trying to get promoted. Like, I really do feel like that has to be their primary aim. And they've had this wobble of late where 
They've lost three or four in the league. And it's knocked them. Like, if you look at the league table, they're now five points from the automatic promotion spots. And they have a much worse goal difference than Leeds. So, in truth, they need to make up six points to jump Leeds. You don't want to be in the playoffs. The playoffs are really, really tough. Really, really tough. Nobody wants to be in the playoffs if they can avoid it. You want to get up automatically. You don't want to risk it. Now, last season, Luton finished third, and they were the team that came up. So, you know, we have in in very recent years seen a team finish third and come up. But the year before, Huddersfield finished third, and they didn't come up. Now, Brentford came up. They'd finished third, and they won the playoffs. But the year before, Brentford had finished third and failed in the playoffs. The year before that, we had Marcelo Bielsa's Leeds. They were, well, they looked the best team in the country for a number of years, for, for, for a lot of that season, or the best team in the league for a lot of that season. But they got into the playoffs, and they lost in the semifinals to a Derby team that finished nine points below them. So it is a crapshoot. You really want to get yourself automatic promotion because the playoffs are just unpredictable. And you just don't know what will happen. You could get an injury. You could get an early sending off. Anything can really happen in the playoffs. And as I look back, you know, more and more, I'm seeing teams finish third, multiple points ahead of the teams in fourth, fifth, and sixth, and just not make it. And Southampton, because of the FFP rules, they need to bounce back into the Premier League because they're going to need that influx of cash. There's just so many years where teams finish third and just don't come up. It's about one in three years a team finishes third and comes up. And given Luton did it last year, you know, low of averages and all that. Right, uh, we will take a break. And when we come back, it's nostalgia time. So see you after this. Right, welcome back. So it is nostalgia day of a Wednesday. So I've been threatening or promising to do this one for a while. So today we're going to take a walk down memory lane and look at Wimbledon Football Club. A club that existed from 1889 until 2004. Founded as Wimbledon Old Centrals and dissolved following the relocation of Wimbledon FC to Milton Keynes and the formation of MK Dons in what remains one of the more disgraceful acts ever allowed in English football. It had taken a few years of wrangling and legal action to finally get what became MK Dons to release the history of Wimbledon Football Club. And that now belongs to AFC Wimbledon, a club that were founded in 2002 by Wimbledon football fans to replace the club that was being stolen from them. 
And before we get into Wimbledon, what's amazing about AFC Wimbledon is that they're still fan-owned. They have a new stadium at Plough Lane, which is the venue of their original stadium, a stadium that was funded by the fans, owned by the club. They have complete control over it. And it is. I haven't been to it yet. I do intend to visit at some point next time I'm in London. But it is a gorgeous little ground. And I love how they've gone about this. Now, at the moment, they're not having the best of runs. They're in League Two. They're eighth outside the playoff spots. Hopefully, they'll get in and get promoted. Last year, they had a bad season. But this club started out like their predecessors at the very bottom in the combined counties league, the ninth tier of English football. They were promoted six times in 13 years and reached a height of League One. They have obviously since been relegated back to League Two. The great thing about the stadium, the capacity is under 10,000, but they have the option of expanding it. The way it was built and the planning permission that they got at the time, they can expand it to 20,000. And as we've seen with Luton and with Bournemouth, that would work in the Premier League if they were to get their way back there. I don't think the Brentford Stadium is... The Brentford Stadium, the Brentford Community Stadium is 17,250. So, you know, we're seeing teams with 20,000 capacity stadiums do well in the Premier League. And the hope would be that at some point, AFC Wimbledon find themselves in the Premier League because it's been really fun to just follow from a distance. Combined Counties League in 0203, they finished third. Following year, they finished first and were promoted. Into the Isthmian League Division 1, they finished first, promoted again into the Premier Division. Finished fourth, finished fifth, then finished third and were promoted into the Conference South. Won it at the first time of asking and were promoted into the National League. The, the, you know, what, what we now know as the National League, then known as the Conference National. Finished eighth the first year and finished second the second year and were promoted into the Football League. Bear in mind, they started playing in 2002 in the ninth tier. And by 2011-12, they were playing in the Football League. They spent five years in League Two. In that fifth year, they finished seventh and won the playoffs and were promoted into League One. And they survived six years in League One before being relegated last season. And now they've had or the season before last, rather. And now they've had two seasons in League Two. Now, they didn't ever threaten promotion from League One into the championship. Their highest finish was 15th, which was the first year that they were in the division. Then it was 18th, 20th, 20th, 19th, and then 23rd in the sixth and final year. They were fortunate to avoid back-to-back relegations because they finished 21st 
in League Two last year. But like I said, they're eighth this year. They've bounced back. And, you know, I'd love to see this club in the Premier League. I really would. There's a lot of clubs outside the Premier League that I, I keep an eye on for nostalgic reasons. One is obviously Coventry. We've talked about them. Sheffield Wednesday, done them. There's a couple of others. Sunderland, I'd like to see in the Premier League. Nottingham Forest and Leeds were two that for a long time I wanted back. We got Leeds back. I think they'll be back next year. And Forest are obviously in the Premier League. But AFC Wimbledon more than any of the others, because of what was done to them, because that club was ripped away from that fan base, and yet that fan base decided, you know what, we're not going to stand for this. We are going to form our own club and we're going to build it the right way. And they've done that. And it's an amazing, amazing achievement. Now, by the letter of the law, they can't actually claim to have won the FA Cup in 1988, but they do have the FA Cup in 19, from 1988. That is in their charter or whatever. Um, in a very cool gesture, in 2010, Vinnie Jones donated his winning medal from the 88 FA Cup final to the fans of the club. And it is now on display at Wimbledon in Sporting History's Museum at Plough Lane, which is very, very cool. Right, on to AFC Wimbledon. So they are founded in 1889. And for the first few years, they're not part of any league. They play you know, friendlies, challenge matches, whatever. They go into the South London League, then they play in the Clapham League. They stay in the Clapham League for a number of years. Then they play in the Mid-Surrey League, bounce around a couple of other leagues. And then in 1921, they go into the Isthmian League. And they stay in that league from 1921 all the way up until 1964. So 43 years. Now, it's worth noting here, they won the Isthmian League in 1959, but were not promoted. They won it again in 62 and in 63, but were not promoted. And then in 1964, they were granted access into the what is basically like the, the Southern National League South of the time. They spent the better part, or actually just spent over a decade in that division from 1965 up until 1977. Again, they won that league three times. They won it in 75, 76, and 77. But back then, we didn't have the same structure that we have now. So you had to be elected into the football league. You had to be invited to join the Football League, and they were not elected after their first win in 75 and the second win in 76. It took winning it three times to be allowed into the Football League. So their first season in the Football League is 1977-78. Again, the club is nearly 100 years old at this point, and this is the first time they're stepping foot in the National League, or in the Football League. 
So they finished 13th in Division 4. The following year, they finish third and get promoted into Division 3. They get relegated straight away. Then they get re-promoted. Then they get relegated straight away. Then they get promoted again in 1983. Now, 1983, they're promoted from Division 4 into Division 3. They immediately finish second in Division 3 and get promoted to Division 2. So this is basically like winning League 2 and League 1 in back-to-back years. Or, well, finishing... Winning League Two and finishing second in League One in back-to-back years. In their first season in Division Two, which is the 84-85 season, they finished 12th. And then in the 85-86 season, they finished third and they're promoted to the top flight. Again, bear in mind, they'd never played in the Football League up until the 1977-78 season. And now here we are starting the 1986-87 season and Wimbledon Football Club are in the top flight. Less than a decade to go through the divisions after nigh on 90 years in lower leagues and rural leagues and Sunday leagues. That alone is an amazing achievement. In their first season in the top flight, they finished sixth, which is a hell of an achievement. This is a division with 22 teams, and they finished sixth. Everton won the league, Liverpool were second, Arsenal were third, sorry, Spurs were third, Arsenal were fourth, Norwich were fifth, and Wimbledon were sixth. Mighty Manchester United finished 11th, 10 points less than Wimbledon. Chelsea finished 14th that year and Manchester City were relegated as were Aston Villa. Villa, who'd only won the European Cup a couple of years previous. In the 87-88 season, they have their greatest triumph. They finish 7th in the league. Liverpool win the league. United finished second, Forest third, Everton fourth, QPR fifth, Arsenal sixth, Wimbledon seventh. Chelsea ended up in the relegation playoff. Three teams went down automatically. One played the fourth team from what we now know as the championship, then Division Two. But the real story of that year is their FA Cup run. This is the real story of the FA Cup, of of Wimbledon. In the third round, they beat West Brom 4-1. In the fourth round, they beat Mansfield 2-1 away from home. Then they go north to Newcastle and beat them 3-1. Then they beat Watford 2-1. And in the semi-final, they beat Luton 2-1. And that sets up a game with Liverpool. Liverpool, who have won the league, who are arguably the best team in Europe at the time, though barred from playing in Europe following Heysel. There has never been an FA Cup final with more lopsided odds. 
Liverpool were expected to go out and wipe the floor with them. And Wimbledon beat them 1-0. A Laurie Sanchez flicked header from a corner on 37 minutes gave Wimbledon the cup. John Aldridge missed a penalty, famously the first penalty ever missed in an FA Cup final. Wimbledon's team that year, Dave Besant, very, very long career from 1978 up until 2015. He spent nine years with Wimbledon. He spent four years with Chelsea. He spent four years with Nottingham Forest, four with Southampton. Went on to become, you know, a backup goalkeeper in his 30s for a bunch of different clubs and managed to sustain that for nigh on 15 years, moving down the divisions, admittedly, but still sustained a very, very long career and retired at the age of, retired properly at the age of 49 and then came back to play for a couple of clubs that were local to him um, in his 50s. Clive Goodyear played right back that day. Played for Luton, played for Plymouth, played for Wimbledon, Brentford, and then went to play for uh, Ernst Burrell in Hong Kong. One of the unsung heroes of the team. Eric Young, long-time Football League centre-back. Played for Slough, Brighton, Wimbledon, Palace, Wolves, Palace again. You've got Andy Thorne at centre-back next to him. <coughs> Terry Phelan at left-back would go on and play for Manchester City, Irish international. Laurie Sanchez, the goal scorer, Northern Ireland international. Had a Semi-successful managerial career for a little while. Uh, made his name at Reading. Played for Wimbledon for 10 years. Played for Swindon when they were in the Premier League. Uh, though I think he only played a handful of games. And then finished his career playing for Sligo Rovers as player manager. Vinnie Jones. Probably the most famous member of that team. Obviously, he's gone on to have great success as an actor, uh, but great success. He's had he's had great success, to be fair. He has sustained an acting career for a very long time, and he's made a ton of films. But he had a strange career. So he started off with Wheelstone, who are best known for the Wheelstone Raider. Um, he went on loan to a club in Sweden, and then he signed for Wimbledon. Played there for three years, then went to Leeds for a year, Sheffield United for a year, Chelsea for a year, went back to Wimbledon for those six years, and then finished off with QPR. Won nine caps for Wales, was very proud to be capped by Wales. A man of very limited footballing ability, but a man of immense desire and heart, and absolutely wild. I think he still holds the record for the quickest yellow card ever given. I think it was three seconds. He was also booked in another game after five seconds. Uh, would regularly just boot people immediately after tip-off. 
he would just run up and boot people. Uh, sorry, five seconds is the, is the uh, the quickest one. I think the other one might be seven seconds. Um, five seconds after kickoff, he charged in and booted Dane Whitehouse up in the air. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Tremendous stuff. He's also very famous for the picture of him grabbing Gaza by the testicles. Um, Vinnie Jones was was the hard man. Vinnie Jones was sent off 12 times in his career. But he could play a bit. And later in his career, when he settled down and stopped trying to be scarier than everybody else, he showed he could play a little bit. Uh, Alan Cork was in that team. Dennis Wise was the best player in that team and would go on and have a very successful career at Chelsea. Up front, they had Terry Gibson. They had John Fashionu. I best move past John Fashionu because if I start talking about John Fashionu, I might get myself in trouble. Uh, off the bench, you had John Scales, who had a really good career as a centre-back for Wimbledon. Played a year at Liverpool. was great. I wish we hadn't sold him, but he wanted to move back south. And he was good for Spurs. <clears throat> and then Laurie Cunningham. Now, for those that don't know, Laurie Cunningham was an immensely gifted winger who came through at Leighton Orient, went to West Brom and kind of really made himself known there. And from West Brom went to Real Madrid and had a couple of good years at Real Madrid. Would then move on to Marseille. Then he came back to England with Leicester. Didn't want to be back in England, so he moved back to Spain with Rio Vallecano. Played for Charleroi in Belgium and then landed at Wimbledon. And he was only there for a matter of months, but he came off the, the bench in the FA Cup final. Uh, he moved back to Rio Vallecano and played there for a year and then died in a car crash in Madrid in the summer of 1989. He was one of the first black people to ever play for England and won six caps. He was part of the famous or infamous Three Degrees group at um, West Brom, himself, Cyril Regis and Brendan Batson, the three black players who were a sign of things to come in English football and garnered so much support from various communities who were underrepresented. Sensational player. Never quite, never quite got to the level he deserved to get to. But you watch old footage of him and you watch him dribble and just watch him embarrass fullbacks and it is a joy to watch. So they beat Liverpool 1-0 and they win the FA Cup. Uh, Bobby Gould as manager who did a tremendous job there in his three years, would also manage manage Bristol, Coventry, Bristol again, Bristol Rovers, Coventry, Bristol Rovers again. Wimbledon, went from Wimbledon to West Brom, then Coventry was the Welsh manager for four years, and then he kind of stepped aside, and we haven't really seen much of him in a long time. Um, it's always strange. There's, there's just managers that I often think of from the past, uh, he's won 
Um, Dave Besant is another one where they work regularly for a long time. And in, in Bobby Gould's case, 18 years as a manager. And yet they retire then quite early. Like he was only 53 when he got his last job. Oh, when, sorry, when he, when he left the Welsh job. And he hasn't come back into management on a, on a full-time basis ever since. Dave Bassett would be another one like that. He managed from 81 to 2002, so 21-year managerial career. He was 57 when he left Leicester, and yet we, we haven't heard from him before. Dave, the only reason I mentioned Dave Bassett is he was the Wimbledon manager before, uh, before Gould. He was the one that saw them through the divisions and did incredible work at building that club, bringing them from Division 4 into Division 1 in four years, three promotions in four years. He was a good manager. He did good work at Watford, at Sheffield United, there for a long time. Not so great at Palace. Was that Forrest? Was that Barnsley? Was that Leicester? And just left the game. The other one that I always think of is Alan Kirbishley. Largely because he was linked with Liverpool for so long. But Alan Kirbishley did amazing work at Charlton for 15 years. And then he went to West Ham. It didn't work out there. When he left West Ham, he was 51. We haven't seen him again. We've seen him do a bit of punditry and whatever else. But it's just, it's odd to me. It's just odd to me. Because you see other managers, like Roy Hodgson, who's not any better than any of those, and yet he still gets jobs into his 70s and does talk that he wants a consultancy job. Anyway, back to Wimbledon. Uh, having won the FA Cup, they obviously didn't get to play in Europe, which was such a shame. In 88-89, they finished 12th. In 89-90, they finished 8th. 90-91, they finished 7th. And then in the final year of the old Division 1, they finished 13th. And then we get to 92-93. The beginning of the Premier League. Real money starts funneling into the division. But Wimbledon are still Wimbledon. And they just go about their business in a way different to everybody else. They finished 12th in the first season of the Premier League. uh, Two points behind 10th place Arsenal and two points behind 10th place Chelsea. Which will tell you how much football has changed. They got to round five of the FA Cup and were knocked out by Spurs couple of notable players in that squad. You've got Neil Sullivan who was, I think he had about a 15 year career. Might have been, no, it would have been more than 15. He must have played for 20 years as a goalkeeper. It was very good in his day, but he's the goalkeeper that got uh, got chipped by Beckham in for that famous halfway line goal. Chris Perry, um, a tough little defender, about 5'8", five, 5'9". Played centre-back, mostly, and was a brilliant 1v1 defender. You've still got Terry Phelan there. Neil Ardley, decent midfielder. Uh, John Fashion is still there. Dean Holdsworth, I've talked about him before, but Dean Holdsworth was a really good striker back in the day. And Robbie Earl, who a lot of Americans will know now as a, as a pundit, Robbie Earl was exceptionally good for 
Wimbledon back in the 90s. 93, 94, they finished sixth under Joe Kinnear. Kinnear is another one. Now, Kinnear has had some health issues. That's probably why he hasn't come back into football. But uh, they they were a problem that year. They were really tough. They finished ahead of Liverpool, five points clear of the Reds. Warren Barton, who would go on to play a part in the Newcastle team that almost won the league. Um, really good right back. Marcus Gale, really quick, powerful forward. Who else have we got here? Uh, Gary Blissett, decent enough. Perry Digweed. Perry Digweed. There you go. Um, 94-95, they finished ninth. So back-to-back top-half finishes, really, really respectable. They brought in Mick Harford. They brought in Efenakoko from Norwich. Efenakoko was a quick, nimble striker, about 6-2 maybe, but not great in the air. I believe he scored the first goal in the Premier League era. I could be wrong about that. I think he did. I could be wrong, but I think Efenakoko scored the first goal ever in the Premier League. He'd been around for a while before he landed at Wimbledon. He landed at Wimbledon, stayed there five years, and was pretty good. Him and Holdsworth were a good front pair. Or even Leonardson arrived that year. They'd sell him for seven times what they paid for him to Liverpool in a couple of years. Hard grafting right side of midfielder. Uh, John Goodman, who was a bustly forward, and Kenny Cunningham, who was a solid right back slash centre back. Uh, they both arrived from Millwall. They sold scales to Liverpool, which funded all of their incomings. And they also let Peter Shilton go after signing him on a short term deal. Uh, 95 96, they finished 14th. Paul healed the only signing. Warren Barton left. Anyone else of note in the squad? No. Um, into 96-97, they finished eighth. Three points behind Chelsea. Ten points ahead of 10th place Spurs. Coming in the door, Duncan Yoop or Jupp from Fulham and Ben Thatcher from Millwall. Now, look, Ben Thatcher is one of the most disappointing, as a young football fan, I was so disappointed with how Ben Thatcher's career played out. Because at Millwall at the time, there was Ben Thatcher at left back and Mark Kennedy at left wing. And Mark Kennedy was a young Irish winger who was very highly touted. And there was a lot of talk about how brilliant these two were as a left-sided combination. And as a Liverpool fan, we had a a weak left side at that time. And there was a lot of talk that Liverpool were going to go and get both of them. They were going to go and get Thatcher to play left back and Kennedy to play left wing. Or if they're playing with a back three, Thatcher could have played left side centre back and Kennedy could play as a left wing back. And that the two of them just had kind of a great chemistry together. But for some reason, Liverpool did buy Kennedy, did not buy Thatcher. Uh, he'd go on to play for Wimbledon, 
for Spurs, for Leicester, for Man City, for Charlton, and for Ipswich. He had a long career. He played as a professional for 18 years. He never got capped by England. He eventually declared for Wales. I think he won seven caps. Yeah, seven caps. Uh, He had a Welsh grandmother. John Toshak picked him. He won seven caps. And then he shot himself in the foot. No, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. John Toshak refused to play him. He got injured, then he got suspended. And then he pulled out of playing for for Wales against England and Poland and then played for Man City a couple of days later. And Toshek was fuming and kicked him out of the squad, basically. But the most notable thing that Ben Thatcher did in his career, and it's a shame that this is the thing that everybody remembers him for, playing for Man City against Portsmouth. Pedro Mendes is running for a ball near the touchline and Ben Thatcher comes across and flings his elbow into Mendes's face and knocks him into the advertising hoardings and clean unconscious. Clean unconscious. Mendes had to be given oxygen. He had a seizure. He was brought to hospital. He had to stay overnight. He had headaches and all sorts of problems thereafter. Amazingly, Thatcher wasn't sent off. Dermot Gallagher, gobshite that he is, gave him a yellow card. On review, he was banned for six games by the club. Not by the FA, by the club. Then the FA got involved and they handed him a further eight-match ban and a potential 15-game addition on top of that suspended pending good behavior. So he got, in the end, I think he was banned for 12 games overall. That's the thing he's most remembered for. And it shouldn't have been. He's one of two left-backs that really let me down with the careers that they had. The other one is Michael Ball. Michael Ball should have been a tremendous left-back. Came through at Everton, went on to Rangers, PSV Eindhoven, Man City and Leicester. Didn't come close to reaching his potential. Always felt let down by the two of them. Anyway, back to Wimbledon. Um, Yeah, 96-97, they finished 8th. 97-98, 97-98, they finished 15th. Level on points with Spurs and a bunch of other clubs. They sold Leonardson. They sold Dean Holdsworth. They sold Vinnie Jones. They signed Mark Kennedy from Liverpool to pair him back up with Ben Thatcher in the hope that that would reignite the pair of them. Kennedy hadn't worked out at Liverpool. They signed Andy Roberts. From Crystal Palace, they signed Michael Hughes, really good midfielder at the time, um, Northern Irish player. They signed him from West Ham. Staley Solbakken, who people know now as a manager, he's manager of the, the Norwegian national team. He was signed that year as well. In 
99, they finished 16th. And you can see now that they're, they're no longer a threat to finish top half. They're struggling at this point. And in this season, Joe Kinnear resigns after seven years in charge. He'd had heart problems during the year. He'd been told, look, you need to, you need to do something less stressful. And it always felt like Joe Kinnear was the sort of the magic ingredient at Wimbledon in the 90s that kind of enabled them to perform above their level. They signed Gareth Ainsworth from Port Vale, who's now a manager, a decent manager in his own right. Um, and they signed John Hartson. Now, John Hartson had been at Luton. He'd gone to Arsenal for, I think, what was a record fee for a teenager at the time. Hadn't really made the grade at Arsenal, but you could tell he was going to be a good player. He went to West Ham. And I always remember West Ham announced the signings of John Hartson and Paul Kitson on the same day. And they paid decent enough money for both of them. And they were good together, a kind of a little and large combination. And then John Hartson booted... Ayel Berkovic, the Israeli midfielder, in the face during training. And that was kind of the end of him at West Ham. So Wimbledon paid seven and a half million for him, which was big money back then for any club. But it was enormous money for Wimbledon. And it didn't really work out. He signed in the January... It didn't really work out that year. He scored two goals in 14 appearances. Jason Ewell managed to top them up. Jason Ewell was really good. Jason Ewell was one of my favourite players from this era. I always wanted Liverpool to sign him because he was a box-to-box midfielder, but he he was kind of like a, a little bit like Joe Willock, but a bit better on the ball. Um, he'd go from Wimbledon to Charlton to Middlesbrough to Southampton to Blackpool and you know, Peter out. He won four caps with uh, Jamaica, but he was a good player. Always liked watching Joe Willock play, or Joe Willock, uh, Jason Newell play. Do like watching Joe Willock play. Uh, 99-2000, so new manager in. And it's Egil Olsen, who had been manager of the Norway team for like eight years. He was manager of the Norway team that famously beat England and ended uh, Graham Taylor's time in charge. At the time he arrived at Wimbledon, he'd been managing for like 26, 27 years, vastly experienced, and it was seen as like a safe pair of hands. And there was all these funny stories about him. He bought a house that the back garden, there was a gate at the bottom of it and it opened on to what was basically Wimbledon's training ground. And he used to just walk across the grass to, to training, uh, wearing wellies. And there was all these funny little quirky stories about him. And he seemed like a really nice man, but that season was a disaster. And he was sacked on the 1st of May and Wimbledon finished in 18th and went down. They went heavy on the Scandinavian uh, market, to no one's surprise, once Olsen was in. They signed Tor Pedersen, uh, Martin Anderson, Trond Anderson, Kettle Vailer, who I don't remember at all, and Andreas Lund, they paid pretty big money for. 
The upside Herman Horiderson, who would go on to have a good career in England uh, for 2.5 million, actually signed him from Brentford. He'd already been in England, but uh, they signed Calvin Davis, who I've talked about him before, and Chris Wilmot. They spent a decent amount of money. They sold Chris Perry to Spurs for 4 million, sold Mark Kennedy on to City. It hadn't really worked out. Efna Coco left and went to Grasshopper Zurich for half a million. The regular starting 11 had Ben Thatcher in goal. Sorry, Ben Thatcher in goal. Neil Sullivan in goal. Uh, ben Thatcher and Alan Kimball as the fullbacks. Kenny Cunningham and Herman Horiderson as the centre-backs. Robbie Earl, Trond Anderson and Jason Yule in midfield. And then up front, they had Carl Court and Marcus Gale either side of Hartson. Carl Court, another one that came through their academy um, around this this late 90s spell and would go on to play for Newcastle and then Wolves. Newcastle paid big money to buy him after this season, seven million. But that's this is the thing. They, they were starting to produce talent from their own academy, having not had one for decades and decades. And they were able to attract a lot of good young players from that South London hub. Unfortunately, down they went, relegated, and the Premier League dream was over. And while you look at the seasons and, you know, there's a couple of top half finishes and it's mostly bottom half finishes, and you think, oh, they're just a normal team. They weren't just a normal team. They were always horrible to play against. When you were looking for the fixtures for your team to play in those seasons, you always looked for the Wimbledon ones and you dread them for weeks and weeks and weeks because they just had this habit of going to the big clubs and getting results and nobody wanted to go and play them at their place. Now, they were playing at Selhurst Park. When they'd been promoted into the top flight, Plough Lane was kind of condemned uh, as not being suitable for... um, top flight football, mostly because of the post-Hillsborough push to make stadiums all-seater wasn't something that Wimbledon were going to be able to afford to do. So they ground-shared with Crystal Palace at Selhurst Park. And there was always talk that they'll go back to Plough Lane, it's going to get redeveloped, they're going to do this, they're going to do that. And it just never came to be. There was, there was talk that Sam Haman, who'd been the owner for most of this most of this run, he bought them he bought them in 1977. So he is actually he actually oversaw the whole thing from non-league all the way into uh, football league and then relegation from the top flight into Division two. But he sold part of his shares to a guy named Bjorn Rune Gjelsten, who was a Norwegian businessman and offshore powerboat racing world champion. And that sale of shares was the beginning of the end for Wimbledon Football Club, which we didn't know at the time, but it was. He was heavily behind the decision to bring in Olsen, but he had a plan all along which was to move that club. 
In 2000-2001, they're in what we now know as the championship, and they finish eighth outside of the playoff spots. In 01-02, they finish ninth outside of the playoff spots. In 02-03, they finish 10th outside of the playoff spots. And then 03-04 is the last season of Wimbledon Football Club. During the summer of 03, Wimbledon went into administration. And this was purposely done. The idea was someone will buy them out of administration and move them. And that's exactly what happened. They were bought out of administration by Pete Winkleman, who was a property developer, and I think he was involved in music. And he moved them to Milton Keynes because the, 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 the feeling was Milton Keynes was going to be the next big city. Milton Keynes was the city that was going to be on the up. It was close enough to London. It was going to be a commuter hub. It would be a place where businesses would move. And now a lot of businesses did move to Milton Keynes, to be fair. But it was going to be the place. And that's why they wanted MK Dons there. Because they thought if they moved that club there, that a fan base would follow. That was their belief. And look, you know, 19 years later, MK Dons are still going. They have a very nice stadium, Stadium MK, which is never full other than for concerts. It's such a shame. It's such a shame that this was ever allowed to happen. Wimbledon Football Club should never have been moved. And it was a cheap end around to get a football league club into Milton Keynes by a bunch of dickheads who never stopped to think what it would mean to the community of people. And it was two years of talking about it. Like, it all kicked off in about 2001 that they were going to move them, that the club was going to be moved. That's why AFC Wimbledon was formed. And AFC Wimbledon was formed as a way for the fans to have a club because they knew their club was going to get taken off them. Shame on everybody who was involved. And to this day, I wish nothing but the worst for MK Dons and all the best to AFC Wimbledon. I'll see you after the break. Right, welcome back. So, two bits of news. Uh, Mark Gwehi set to be out for up to eight weeks after having surgery on an ongoing knee issue. Um, shame for Palace. Bad timing with Glasner coming in. But I assume... He's had it now because he wants to play in the Euros. He's so important to them. He's such a good defender. I wonder, will he be at Palace next year? I'd imagine there will be a couple of teams very keen on a player of his quality. If Chelsea hadn't been stupid, they'd still have him. 
and he'd be their best centre back. And if they hadn't been really stupid, they'd have him, Tamore, and Colwell, which would be a really good back three or three really good centre backs for two positions, plus Trevor Chalaba, so that actually and Bashir Humphreys. They could have five centre backs for two slots, all homegrown, and not have spent all that money badly. Uh, John O'Shea has been named interim head coach of the Republic of Ireland. O'Shea won 118 caps as a player and was an assistant under Stephen Kenny, both with the senior team and with the 21s. Um, the, the managerial search has been a farce. It has genuinely been a farce. And the fact that they're still looking is really, really poor. Um, I, I quite like the, the, the appointment of O'Shea. He knows the group of players. He knows what's required. He was an important player for Ireland for a long, long time. Lee Carsley seemingly is the the guy they really want. They went down the road a bit with Chris Coleman, but have since moved off that. Neil Lennon has been linked. I think that'll be horrible. I don't know who they go for if they can't get Carsley. Maybe O'Shea does well and they decide to give it to him, but he is unproven as a manager. He has been a coach. He was most recently a coach with Birmingham for a very short run uh, as one of Wayne Rooney's staff, having left the Ireland role in November. Um, Yeah, the circus continues. Uh, on to the gossip then. Liverpool and Scotland left back Andy Robertson is the top target for Bayern Munich as they plan on how to replace Alfonso Davies, who looks set to join Real Madrid. Uh, Liverpool should sell. Liverpool should absolutely sell. Arsenal's concern over the injury record of Gabriel Jesus is a factor in their striker search with Ivan Tony, Victor Jacques, Victor, uh, Victor Osman, and Joshua Xerxes among options considered, I would bet Xerxes is the only one they can actually afford. Tony will be 60 million. Osman will be 115. Jacarez will be 75. That's his buyout. Xerxes would probably be 40. And they might be able to afford that. But Arsenal have financial fair play issues this year. That is just the fact of it. They're going to have to sell a couple of players in order to be able to afford anybody, really, because they've got the David Rea money that they have to pay. Uh, the Gunners are also keen on Jarl Hato from Ajax, but they Ajax are hoping to sign him to a new deal. He's really talented. He's 17. As part of a deal to sign Kylian Mbappe, Real Madrid have agreed to sign his brother, Ethan. Ethan just made his debut for PSG recently. Zinedine Zidane is top of Jim Ratcliffe's list to replace Eric Den Hag. I bet he's not. Roberto De Zerbi is also a potential candidate to replace the Dutchman. That one would make more sense, more realistic. Uh, Bayern Munich are also interested in De Zerbi, along with Xabi Alonso and Hansi Flick. Mohamed Salah and Kevin De Bruyne are the Saudi Pro League's top targets this summer. I don't think they'll get either of them. Vincent Company's job is not under threat at Burnley, despite his team looking set for an instant return. I, you would just assume that that was sort of agreed in advance, that, look, we'll go up, we'll have a go, and if we go down, we go down, but we'll be in a good position to come back up. It'll be interesting to see if they can hold on to a lot of these players in the championship. 
They signed a lot of young players, so potentially they will be. Barcelona are considering a move for David De Gea, who's currently a free agent. I cannot believe that David De Gea is still a free agent. Genuinely. Now, maybe he's enjoying a year off. I just can't believe that he's spent the last year of the, this season sitting out. Um, He'd be a horrible fit at Barcelona, though. Newcastle and Tottenham are keen on Omar Marmouche, the 25-year-old Eintracht Frankfurt and Egypt striker who has scored 10 goals in 18 Bundesliga games this season. Okay. Barcelona are interested in replacing Xavi with Simone Inzaghi. I mean, I could I could kind of see that working. They have a lot of the players that would fit a back three. And he is going to play a back three. So maybe, maybe. Uh, Liverpool are interested in signing Porto and Argentina midfielder Alan Varela. There are not enough words to describe how much I would love that. And that'll do. I'll talk to you all tomorrow, folks. Take care of yourselves. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.